The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Robin, and in this episode, Lee and Mina discuss historical novel Disoriental by Nagar Javadi. Asia has a short documentary giving us some insight into the library during lockdown. We interview Community Engagement Officer for Heritage, Alison, about her role and current exhibition. Susanna has a book match for someone wanting biographical and historical commentaries, as well as relatable domestic and crime fiction. Plus, we'll have book reviews of Becoming by Michelle Obama and The Happiest Refugee by Ando from staff members Kathy and Alice. Hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm Lee and I'm joined now by Mina. Hey Mina. Hi Lee. And this month, we're going to be talking about a book called Disoriental by Nega Javadi. Um, it is her debut novel. Um, it was originally in French and translated by Tina Cover. Um, and it's the winner of so many different prizes, the Albertine Prize, the Lambda Literary Awards, and a finalist in the National Book Award and the Best Translated Book Awards. Long story short, this is <laughs> a very good book. And yes. um, a lot of people think so, but I'm gonna hand over to you, Mina, to talk about what this book is about. Okay, thanks, Lee. Um, so a bit of an introduction to the book, just some bare bones. Um, our protagonist, Kimia, is waiting in a Parisian fertility clinic at the beginning of the story, uh, beginning of the book, and she's recounting to us the stories of her extended family. We meet her family while she's sitting amongst many anxious couples waiting to start their own families. So her paternal great-grandfather and his harem of wives in Mazandaran in Persia to her mother's Armenian family's exile from Russia and her immediate family's exile from Iran. We're privy to her conversations with uncle number two that over time reveal unspoken truths about them both. Um, also stories around the coincidence of her birth and her grandmother's death and her childhood playing in their courtyard in Tehran. Kimia's parents are both political activists and opponents of both the Shah and Khomeini's regimes. They left Tehran for Paris with their daughters after Khomeini's arrival and the Shah's downfall when their hopes for freedom of expression and democracy were dashed. Once they're in Paris, Kimi and her sisters had different coping strategies and they grow further apart. Their family is so used to having these happy, raucous gatherings with their friends and family and fellow dissidents and activists are now exiled and isolated. So Kimia moves out of home at 16. She lives in squats and travels around Europe working in bars until she meets an older friend who encourages her to go to London and become an audio engineer as she's always dreamed of doing. Yeah, so there's 
themes there, I guess, of motherhood, uh, parenthood, um, gender and sexuality, assimilation and exile. Um, yeah, many themes, many big themes. Yeah, there's a lot to it. And it's um, it's a really fascinating way, the way that this novel is written. It's... Um, it does have the main part of of Kimia waiting in the fertility clinic, but she bounces in and out of this chronological retelling um, of mm. her family's history, and not only to her, but to her parents and to her grandparents, going way, way back. And it aligns with with Iranian politics and international relations, and mm. also the the moods and changes of society in Iran at the time. Disoriental also has a lot of, um, it's it's written in a really interesting way and there's a lot of footnotes to give context um, into parts of Iranian history that's, that people in um, from Iran and in the Iranian uh, diaspora are very aware of. However, I, I feel like um, Negar is very aware that her audience based on her experiences as someone who um, moved to Paris when she was 11, um, she's painfully aware of the way that she has to kind of explain everything to mm. people. Yeah. And she knows that her audience likely will not be Iranian and will come into the novel with really preconceived ideas of what Iran is like. Yeah. Or the even stereotypes. Like, yeah. And watch, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's, yeah, she's aware of this. Uh, I felt like in, in a way where she's not only just adding footnotes to explain things, but also in a way that she kind of breaks that wall into addressing the reader directly. She's um, mm. almost like just answering the questions that uh, she assumes that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And that we should have. And if we haven't thought of them ourselves, then she's telling us, this is what you should be asking. And now I'm just telling you, (laughs) here's what you you should know. Um, And I I love that. I think that's really great. I always always love footnotes in a book. I love when when it feels like the author's talking directly to you, even though in this instance it's not actually, I think it's supposed to be the character, Kimia, who is talking to you. Um, but there is also obviously a very close connection between the author and her protagonist. Yeah. I think that the in the back of the the book it does describe that um, Negar also did move to Paris from Iran when she was 11, and her family for it were a family of intellectuals also opposed to the regimes of the Shah and Khomeini. So she has a very close relationship with her protagonist, and I think so. It, yeah, it feels as though maybe the author's talking to and maybe it's the protagonist. And I, I, I like that sort of mix, mix up of um, voices. Uh, and it does feel really personal too when there's those footnotes and she's pointing out to you kind of what to, how to, how, how for you, how, how you can assimilate this information yeah. um, better and to better understand her and maybe to better understand some of the Iranian diaspora as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've, I've seen, um, going through some reviews of it online, I've, I've seen some critiques of that style, but I don't oh. necessarily see it as she's 
talking down to the readers, but rather just adding some context and just explaining, yeah. you know, what she has to try and tackle daily. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm, I'd be so interested to actually hear what those criticisms were or where they're sort of coming from because, yeah, I, I found it so useful. Were there any uh, were there any themes that jumped out to you in the book? Mina? Yeah, particularly, I think um, a really big theme for this book is exile. Mm. Um, I have a a couple of paragraphs that I wanted to read that illustrate the exile that um, Kimia is living through in Paris mm-hmm. after her time in Iran. Um, so when they leave Iran after Khomeini has come into power. They around the Islamic regime has changed the names of the streets and the quarters, and they call they are what people call ayatollahized, um, and they confuse and blur the landmarks and memories, so that even if you were to return, nothing is quite as it was. You know, none of your street names are the same. If you were trying to get around the city, it just it just wouldn't be the same. So. You can know that from the other side of the world and sort of feel a disconnect, an extra disconnect, even though, you know, there's this massive disconnect because you're not there anymore. Mm. Um, In this following passage that I'll read, um, Anna is mentioned, and Anna will be Kimia's partner, who we meet later in the book. Um, In this passage, they're not yet together, and she's about to leave with her band to record an album. She'd come to tell me goodbye because they'd decided to leave, she and the other members of Gannett, and rent a house a few miles outside Anvers to record their next album. As she talked, my head filled with rock and roll fantasy images, the group holding up together, composing songs, and lying on soft couches arguing. But even more than the desire to be part of that secret, exciting universe I'd dreamed about so much as a teenager, I could feel the hunger rising in me to be in a house. And not just any house, but Uncle Number Two's place in Mazandaran. Usually it was summer weather that caused, still causes, that strange feeling inside me when the desire to be there and the pain of not being able to go wage war deep in my gut. This, I think, is why I hate summer so much. But back then, when Anna said the word house, I felt a yearning so violent that I could have sat down and cried. That's the tragedy of exile. Things as well as people still exist but you have to pretend to think of them as dead. I think mm-hmm. that's, a yeah, a very, I mean, it's it's very strong um, imagery for the feeling, the feelings of loss that come along with exile. Mm. It is, yeah, it's just a really striking way of explaining things. So there's mm. like, um, yeah, it's very complex. It is, yeah. Yeah, the explanations are really potent and I think that this book does that really well to give readers a sense of that pain and all the types of loss that come with come with exile. I was thinking that this is such a strange time to be living in and in a way there are so many people living with a type of exile at the moment, not a political exile, but not being able to get back to their countries of origin, see their family and friends and to a lesser degree people even within Australia not being able to move to state different states and see their friends and family. 
it's obviously very different, but there is a parallel there and it's just one of those things that pops up as you're reading and you're thinking it and there are those parallels between Kimia's pain and of the exile and, you know, the things that we're hearing in the news all the time and we know people who can't get home and things like that. Mm. Yeah, this next paragraph, the habit, um, speaks to the title disoriental and the way it suggests losing a part of yourself in order to fit in or integrate. So it kind of covers the theme of um, assimilation. Things like democracy and social justice, the ability to rely on a government to take care of your problems, undoubtedly play a part in the fact that the French don't feel the need to get close to each other and communicate and cast their nets beyond the usual patch of sea. The French stay close in on themselves, protecting their peacefulness and personal space as fiercely as a mother hen with her eggs. I act like that myself. I withdraw at the approach of strangers, sticking to a murmured hello when I pass a neighbour. The talkative, sociable child I used to be has turned into a Parisian adult with a face that closes off whenever I leave the house. I have become, as I'm sure everyone does who has left his or her country, someone else, someone who has translated myself into other cultural codes, firstly in order to survive and then to go beyond survival and forge a future for myself. And since it is a generally acknowledged idea that something is lost in translation, it should come as no surprise that we unlearn at least partially what we used to be to make room for what we have become. Yeah, it's it's, it's such a, um, I think she describes assimilation so well. And there's that idea that, yeah, in order to integrate it to, into a culture, you have to disintegrate first. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's a really striking scene where Kimia's father, Darius, is, um, yeah, he, he ends up being in Paris and going on for four hour walks, which is actually somewhat relatable right now. Yeah. But yeah, there, there was a moment where he was showing her the, the metro escalator and, um, he he avoids the escalator and takes the stairs and, mm. instead, and he describes to her, "Well, the escalator is for them." Yeah, it's not for me. Yeah, yeah, you know, the French, the mm. people that were born there, and um, yeah, it's it's quite um, striking. Darius never seemed like the, I, I suppose a lot of the characters never really seemed comfortable, but his yeah, his way of reacting seemed to be to to really close himself off yeah. from his family and from his friends and absolutely. Without his work, he he really did disintegrate when he was in Paris. So I think we should probably just mention that Darius and Sarah are Kimia's parents, and they both are activists. Um, Darius is an intellectual and writes um, essays and I th believe started the Communist Party of Iran or was part of the Communist Party of Iran. Mm. Um, and he was really consumed by that work in Tehran. And he, although he loved his family and was excited when his kids were born, <laughs> as they go into, he that really was his major passion. And Sarah, um, Kimia's mother, Darius was really her great passion. She loved her children too, but their sort of mission together to 
um, change Iran for the better was their driving force. And so when they're exiled from Iran and they're in Paris, they don't have that great thing that they're working towards anymore. And, mm. yeah, and it, the kind of the whole family sort of suffers for it as well. They all sort of peel off and, you know, they have their own ways of coping and their survival strategies and but they sort of become exiled from each other as well once they move to. Sarah was really fascinating as well because, yeah, she she did have that just overwhelming love and support for her husband. Um, and she was also quite revolutionary in, her, in, mm. in a lot of ways too. You know, she was mm. a teacher and in Iran she, would, um, she was quite a progressive teacher as well and would yeah. introduce a lot of new ideas in her classes and then was was threatened for it yeah was threatened for it um she ended up um she, she ended up writing a book in in farsi and um which was really successful based on her experiences of bringing her yeah. daughters across mm-hmm. across kurdistan and across turkey to get to paris mm. um and it was quite painful when she wanted that that book translated into French and she wanted <laughs> yeah. her, um, her daughter's help with that because her daughters were more comfortable with the language. But yeah. I got the sense that the daughters just found it um, too painful. Too um, painful, yeah, and they were trying to move on and they, they didn't want to go back into that history whereas because they were so young when they moved. This is the the sense that I got, and then but for Sarah was, you know, this is her main the main part of her life, mm. um, whereas they are about to embark on a whole new section of their life, so they don't want to look back, I suppose. But mm. yeah, that was quite devastating to read. Yeah, yeah, you're just thinking, please just do it for it. It wouldn't be that <laughs> hard. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. There, was, there was this striking moment where the kids were like, "Oh, you know, translations and it's an art form, and it's it's not mm. as simple as just knowing two languages and you know translating something." And that there's so much truth to that. Translation is so sure. much more. Um, yeah. But Sarah just saw that as just like a cop out. Just like yeah, if everyone had that, you know, if, if everyone had that perspective then nothing would be translated into Farsi or Persian yeah um, that's right exactly. yeah yeah the the relationship between Sarah and her daughters um yeah I found really fascinating I suppose that takes us into um the theme of motherhood and family mm-hmm. uh, throughout here so Kimia's sisters and mother do create this importance on having children and the fulfillment that you know that that brings them yeah and, uh, and it it does somewhat reoccur because Kimia does find herself in a fertility clinic and that's yeah. where the the story is set and that setting um of being in a fertility clinic of not following a, a traditional way of um um of becoming a mother, it seemed like somewhat of a of a metaphor for Kimya 
Um, she spent years in like this liminal states and now she's waiting in this waiting room for what seems like an eternity. And when you look yeah. at the form, it's kind of the, um, she is waiting in there for the entire book and retelling these stories. Yeah. She's in this liminal state of between cultures and between genders and between languages. So, like like many records and cassettes, this book also took on somewhat of an audio format because it had a side A and a side B. And uh, Kimia explains that, you know, the side B is never as rewarding or fulfilling and never as successful, um, which I found really funny. But the side B um, kind of marked when... Kimya was in Paris and mm. it's notably shorter than um, side A which yeah. I found really fascinating there's there's moments where years pass in a couple of pages mm. um, and it seems to move quite quickly what did you make of that yeah I guess I was thinking I was surprised considering all of the reviews and things that I'd read prior to reading this book that there was so little about her and the music that she loved and mm. that obsession of hers, um, which obviously is an obsession and, like, she talks about it being an escape and sort of a solace and a calling. Um, but, she, but yeah, you don't, you don't get a lot of it. You don't kind of get all that much about what music she's into or really, I mean, there's probably a few sentences about how it's sort of transformative. But she kind of just tells you it is rather than it being shown. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it, it, it didn't necessarily need more of it, but it was just interesting that, like, I feel like maybe people were trying to sell books by telling us it was about this, you know, punk music aficionado waiting in a Parisian fertile, you know, fertility clinic, just made it sound really punchy or something yeah yeah I I remember reading something that is about you know or just just even the mention that she turned out to be a punk and I was like oh is that is that punk like I don't don't recall those (laughs) words being used this just sounds like a person with interests yeah uh, yeah and she calls it and she calls it rock and roll she doesn't call it punk so, yeah. yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we're being too nitpicky. About maybe that. we are, maybe we are, but, yeah, I think it might be my obsession of music that made me nitpicky about that, but, yeah. But, anyway, it was a fabulous book. I I completely devoured it, and I'd recommend it to anybody. It just it does have so many elements and just so much to relate to in terms of family and just that story, that, you know, historical stories of family. And then also learning so much about Iran and Persia, mm. um, about their politics, about even about the landscapes, just things I just didn't know. And, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I also devoured it and highly recommend it. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Mina. And now we check out Lockdown in the Library with Asia. We've just entered our fifth lockdown. It's actually the sixth one in Melbourne. And here's a snippet of what happens in the library during lockdown. 
It's eerily quiet out on the streets. Wayne's delivery staff, we have a patron at the entrance for click and collect. That's Wayne. He lets us know when there's a patron waiting to pick up an item at the entry. Inside the library, it's even quieter. On a Thursday morning, we would usually have story time. Uh-oh, a river, a deep, cold river. Can we go over it? No, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. Can we all go for a swim through the river? But today, we have this. Pig the Tourist by Aaron Blaby. Pig was a pug, and I'm sorry to say, when he went on vacation, he caused great dismay. You could make Lauren is part of our children and youth services team. She's a comic book enthusiast and loves to read. She sings nursery rhymes and does story time for juniors. I think one of the biggest changes is with baby bounce and story time and toddler time, because... Usually when I do it, I get to hear people singing with me in a big group, but uh, now all I hear is myself. I really miss that, doing it with everybody and hearing everybody sing um, and not having to worry about videos glitching, but, you know, I can't wait until we reopen again and everyone gets to come back in. It's going to be really awesome. Most staff are working from home. There is a skeleton crew working on a holds list, and creating packages to send to local library users. The person I spoke to said they want romance and mystery, but also they like period pieces. So I'm narrowing down some titles like Kitty Peck and the Daughter of Sorrow. This is Rwandi. She's also collecting books for patrons. I miss the most since we've been in lockdown are the patrons in the library. I miss talking to them, helping them out. I miss seeing kids running around the library, their laughter and chatter. It feels a bit empty without uh, patrons in the library. And um, I also do uh, community language free home delivery calls, uh, which is a fantastic service that we provide uh, for our community. I talk to Sinhalese patrons. Um, you always get this um, happiness and surprise uh, in their voice to hear uh, someone talking in their mother tongue, and which is a very rewarding experience for myself um, because initially when we talk about what books or any other library material they want and then we talk about the delivery uh, instructions, specific ones if they, there's any, and then we always end up um, talking a little bit about their day. And sometimes they ask about Sri Lanka, whereabouts you're from, how long have you been in Australia? And sometimes they share the experience with their grandkids or how lonely they are just living on their own. So I think it is uh, an amazing um, experience because uh, most of the people uh, live on their own during this uh, lockdown and uh, it is uh, really nice to be able to talk with someone, um, share their experience and um, make them feel a bit uh, happier and connected to the society. We stack the books, 
Oh yeah, here it is. We check them out. And then we post the packages out to their homes. Lena Hernandez is our library engagement team leader and she's been organising our free home delivery service during lockdown. The service started last year in 2020. As we all remembered and know very well by now, state lockdowns are challenging and can be very isolating. The government lockdown offered us with an opportunity to understand that even when the libraries were closed, we could still bring some joy and entertainment to people at home. Anyone living within the city of Greater Dandenong is eligible. Members can request up to 10 library items per library cards, and each card holder can receive one delivery per month. The delivery is contactless and is completed by an Australia Post courier driver. We also would like to encourage people in the community who speak a language other than English to get in contact with us on 1300 630 and we will call them back with an interpreter. This is also an opportunity for us to thank all the library staff working behind the scenes for the wonderful work that has been done since 2020 when we first started this service. We also have Nanette and Joe who run our adult literacy and learning services. We're still able to help with the basic needs for resumes, job searching and application and form filling. I found that often the clients had the paper form, which meant that I can go online and download the same form and then we can walk through the questions one by one and explain them as we go. It's just as easy to ask questions over the phone to make the resume as it would be if I had the client in front of me. We're also offering half an hour of English conversation over the phone twice a week for those patrons who have English as a second language and don't want to lose touch while they're in lockdown. And we just found out that lockdown's been extended for another week. Uh, but we need more time. And that's why on the advice of the Chief Health Officer, we will extend these lockdowns again of it flaring up once we open up. We just can't find that. DP to library staff, we've got one here for click and collect. It's time to get back to work. Next up, Robin interviews Alison on her role as Community Engagement Officer Heritage. Hi everyone, I'm here today with Alison, who is a librarian at Greater Dandenong Libraries and also Community Engagement Officer Heritage. Welcome Alison to the Open Book Podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about your role in Heritage Services? I'm the Community Engagement Officer and I work with the Heritage Team and other departments within Council to promote a greater understanding and awareness of City of Greater Dandenong's cultural heritage. We do this with a range of public exhibitions and programs, plus online material, including the weekly Flashback Friday posts that are on the Council's Facebook page. I do have to sometimes stop and pinch myself, though, that I actually get to do what I do for my job. I'm a lover of old houses, and I can spend hours in them thinking about what the walls could say if they could talk and tell us the houses' histories. When I was recently installing my exhibition at Laurel Lodge in the Heritage Hill Historic Museums and Gardens, I had a moment where I just had to stop and go, wow, not only was I installing my first physical exhibition, it was happening in a house that was originally constructed in 1869. 
Mm, yeah, that is so good. Must have been such a good feeling. And speaking of that, one of your recent exhibitions is called Reading, Writing and Arithmetic Early Education in the City of Greater Dandenong. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm fascinated by the way things used to be and comparing them with how things are now and seeing both the differences and the similarities. Education, uh, it's changed so much since the 1800s and school kids really now have no idea how good they actually have it. During the first part of the 19th century, children didn't even actually have to go to school. It wasn't mandatory and even if they did attend, if their parents needed them at home, then they could be pulled out at any time. Mm. It was uh, vastly different as well. You could go to prison at the age of seven and at the age of 14 for girls or 16 for boys. You could actually be married with parental consent. And then this all changed in 1873 when the Education Act of Victoria was introduced. It saw the implementation of the Education Department to control schools and children between the ages of six to 15 were now obliged to attend school. And this education would actually be free. Victoria was also one of the first colonies in Australia and one of the first in the world to introduce a free, compulsory and secular, which is non-religious, education for children. Um, Punishment was also common in schools during the 19th century, so you could be caned for a number of reasons, and this included misbehaviour, rudeness, lying and also being left-handed. I couldn't see that in modern schools at all. Yeah, no, thankfully things have changed a bit now, especially for left-handers. <laughs> um, I'm interested in finding out about how you put such an exhibition together. How do you go about your research and choosing different pieces for the exhibition? And it all starts with a brainstorming of ideas about what you would like to see in an exhibition and what interest there would be and how our community could relate to it. Um, Sometimes we'll also get requests from council members. So my next exhibition for next year is actually a requested one and it's one that I'm actually really looking forward to. And Once you have a solid, tangible idea, it then goes into an exhibition proposal form for approval and once approval has been granted, you're good to basically start your research. So then there is months of intense research that takes place and very slowly the exhibition comes together. It often twists and turns and then the result is nothing like what you planned in your head months before when you first imagined it. And I find online newspapers are a very fun time trap. I can spend hours reading through them and not even notice when the time's going by. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. And we also work very closely with both the Springvale and District and Dandenong and District Historical Society and they're a wealth of information and are very, very helpful. They provided all the information for the local schools that are in my exhibition, plus all the photographs as well. Mm, yeah, wow, great, great resources. And what kind of resources that are available for the public to access in the heritage area? So online, our sort of main access for the public is our digital photography archive, which is on eHive, and that's mm-hmm. the Great Southern collection, the collection of negatives that we have within our collection that is slowly being digitised. Mm-hmm. And We also have the Heritage Hill Historic Museum and Gardens, and that's where both Laurel Lodge and Benga House are located. Mm, Fantastic. Yeah, they're great places to to visit. Um, So for you, what have you learned so far in this heritage role? Um, I've found that exhibitions tend to take a lot longer than what you expect. 
and that the research is a lot of fun. Well, for me, it's a lot of fun, but mentally exhausting. And that's all forgotten, though, when you get to installation day and you see your months and months and months of hard work paying off as you sort of install the exhibition, put the panels up, install objects, and then you step back and you go, yeah, I did this. I can't believe it. Mm, yeah, it must be very satisfying. And, um, yeah, we'll hope that we can um, – see that exhibition in person um, sometime in the next few months. Otherwise, um, there might be some online content that's available as well. Yes, yeah. We're planning on a digital exhibition video as well, which will be available um, by the Council's YouTube channel. Mm, yeah, that'll be great. And finally, do you have any reading recommendations for our listeners? And there's a book that's just recently been released called The City of Opportunity, The Making of the City of Greater Dandenong. This is the 25th anniversary publication that was commissioned by the City of Greater Dandenong in 2018. And it actually tells the story of the first 25 years of Greater, uh, Greater Dandenong. And it's available to borrow and purchase from both the libraries. And the proceeds from the sale of this book uh, will go back to Springvale and Dandenong District Historical Societies to help them continuing their valuable work. Mm, that's fabulous. Yeah, I've seen it. It's a, a great publication. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Alison. It's been fascinating to hear about your work and all the wonderful heritage resources available in the city of Greater Dandenong. Mm, thank you. It's been uh, great to talk to you. And you can find links to Heritage Services and the online archives, as well as the Reading, Writing and Arithmetic Exhibition and the City of Opportunity commemorative publication in the podcast show notes. And now, Susanna's response to a book match request from a patron. Hi everyone, my name is Susanna and I'm an Information Librarian of the City of Greater Danong Libraries. In today's book match segment, I'm going to be reviewing the following books. Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth. The Beijing Bureau by Trevor Watson. I know I am rude, but I like it. Prince Philip's Life in His Own Words, Nigel Cawthon. And Girl Eleven by Amy Suda Clark. Recently, I was super excited to assist a patron with a bookmatch inquiry. Just like everyone else, Anne was very much over the dystopian non-fiction reality that we are living in right now with the pandemic. Anne wanted some escapism in the form of light-hearted biographical and historical commentaries, as well as relatable domestic and crime fiction. These are some recommendations I made for her based on what I have read over the last 18 months. Leanne Moriarty, one of our own homegrown authors, who had the bestseller Big Little Lies, which was turning to a TV show, has written another fiction book called Nine Perfect Strangers. This book has also been so successful that it has also been made into a TV show starring Nicole Kidman and Melissa McCarthy. I really enjoyed the slow pace of this book because it keeps the reader engaged in seeing where the story is headed. The book is set at a health and wellness resort, Tranquillium in the Australian rainforest. Numerous characters enter the retreat for various reasons. Some are there for self-improvement, to lose weight or to just recharge. However, things, of course, take an interesting turn in this psychological thriller. All is not what it seems at Tranquillium House. This book, perhaps not Moriarty's best, could be just what the doctor ordered right now. 
that is a great distraction from everything going on. Melbourne's own Sally Hepworth, author of The Things We Keep and The Family Next Door, has written another Australian-set domestic novel, The Good Sister. I found this book really relatable, with a big twist which you honestly do not see coming. Fern Castle is a librarian and her sister Rose are very close. They have a very codependent relationship. Rose cannot have children and persuades Fern to have a baby for her instead. The book seems pretty light the first chapters in, but as your reading progresses, you discover that the characters have their own secrets, their own journeys and a final crescendo which left me absolutely reeling. I couldn't put this book down. On a much more serious note now, the Beijing Bureau, an anthology of essays written by 25 foreign correspondents from various news outlets over the world, including the New York Times and CNN, has been edited by Trevor Watson. These foreign correspondents travelled to China as far back as the 1970s. There are some really interesting stories of some of the bureaucratic processes in order to travel and report in China. With China becoming a stronger world power, this book is very relevant and timely. The next book is quite an interesting one, and one for royal watchers. The late Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, with Nigel Cawthon as his writer. I know I am rude, but I like it. Is at times quite an amusing rambling of anecdotal commentaries on royal life and travels through life. At the age of 21, the prince wrote to a relative, I know you will never think much of me. I am rude and unmanly, but it is fun. It is quite confronting to read the air of entitlement, but at the same time, it also has some nice escapism. The book did have a few editing errors, but overall it was a good read. There are some amusing stories told. However, one cannot deny that a lot of what Prince Philip said was quite offensive and polarising. If you want to have a bit of a chuckle, this is the perfect book for you. Amy Suda Clark's debut novel, Girl 11, is a truly excellent crime thriller. Set in Melbourne, Ali Castillo, a former social worker, now true crime podcaster, is investigating the countdown killer, a famous cold case. A listener leaves a tip on her podcast and Ellie goes to interview them only to discover that the tipster is now a victim themselves. Whilst this book is not as light as the ones previously reviewed, it is still quite an easy read. The writing is very good and for a debut novel, it's a pretty good thriller. All of these books are available via our catalogue and if you'd like a list of recommendations curated especially for you and your reading tastes, Go to greaterdaninong.vic.gov.au slash libraries or follow the link for Bookmatch in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, we have two title reviews from library staff members Alice and Kathy. Like many before me, I loved reading Becoming by Michelle Obama, first published in 2018. It made me think, Why write a memoir? To chronicle an extraordinary life? To show gratitude to those who have been significant? To relive or process the past? No doubt because you've been the first black first lady. Certainly, Michelle acknowledges family and friends throughout her book, as if she's sharing her story to show gratitude for her life. But perhaps 
The main reason is the importance of representing herself and having autonomy and self-determination. As she writes, black women's stories have either gone untold or been told by others. How do you remember it all? Barack Obama apparently keeps notes on everything, so I wasn't surprised that his latest memoir was the longest book I'd ever read. My journals have references to lunches with friends and how I felt at work. Not sure anyone would find that interesting. Anyway, back to Michelle. The early chapters describe her childhood, full of joy and love and plenty of stories that demonstrate how strongly self-confident and well-grounded she was, even as a child. She was not without her doubts and insecurities, but that certainly didn't stop her from being a bright and successful student. She took piano lessons from her mother's aunt, Robbie, who terrified everyone, including the adults. But Michelle was able to stand up for herself, even to her. And, by her own admission, she bossed her older brother around. So how did this come about? There's an early story about her mum quietly going to the school and lobbying for change of class for Michelle because the teacher was clearly incompetent. Many stories acknowledge the crucial role Michelle's mother played in forming Michelle's opinions and values and the close relationship Michelle had with both her parents. In the south side of Chicago, there wasn't wealth or luxury, but the family was clearly a solid and grounding influence on Michelle, right up to and including adulthood. She was a successful and willing student, eventually heading to Princeton University and Harvard Law School. Although she worked as a lawyer, it wasn't the job she had longed for. She wanted a job that gave her the chance to care for and support her community, to show empathy and compassion, to fight for the underdog. But even as she decided to quit the highly successful and highly paid role as a lawyer, she saw the impact that had on her parents, who had worked tirelessly to put her brother and her through school and college and were clearly proud and pleased she had been so successful. She saw the irony now. Because of their sacrifice, she had a choice that they never had. In the meantime, Michelle met Barack, and their lives began to mix and merge. Initially, Barack, also a lawyer, worked at a university as, a, as an author, and a community organiser working for social change. And then he talked about entering politics. Michelle writes, This won't be news to anyone, but my husband did become a politician. He was a good person who wanted to have an impact in the world. And despite my scepticism, he decided this was the best way to go about it. Such is the nature of his faith. After they married, in a beautiful ceremony surrounded by friends and family, Barack and Michelle struggled to get pregnant. She says, It turns out that even two committed go-getters with a deep love and a robust work effort can't will themselves 
into being pregnant. This was made particularly challenging because now Barak was working away from home as his political career started to take off. But even when the stars aligned with, as Michelle says, Barak flooring it up the interstate after a late vote so that he could hit my ovulation window, and later, when he was on summer break and available full time, it didn't happen. Still, there's a happy ending to that part of the story. Next, Michelle was campaigning strongly and tirelessly for Barack, and she supported his career at the expense of her own. As we all know, politics is an ugly business, with political opponents, the media, social media, all impacting on anyone who dares to try it. Michelle writes how she felt in the campaigning days. Doubts never leave us for good. We all have tender spots, and our instinct is to keep them protected. When she was accused of being an angry black woman in early campaigning, she wanted to ask detractors, which is worse? angry or black. She goes on to say, it's remarkable how a stereotype functions as an actual trap. How many angry black women have been caught in the circular logic of that phrase? When you aren't being listened to, why wouldn't you get louder? If you're written off as angry or emotional, doesn't that just cause more of the same? Michelle is very honest and direct about this, but she didn't let it stop her. She continued campaigning, and the experts in Barack's team helped to work on ways of improving her delivery, mainly her body language, which, she also points out, was judged differently because of her gender. Then there was the move to Washington. Of course, Michelle gave up her own career at this point and became the First Lady. She was certainly committed to this role and to the community, but always put family first. She writes, I had a busy day ahead, but my mind would stay locked on our daughters. We were asking so much of them. I sat with that thought not just for the entire day, but for months and years to come. This was the first day for the girls at the new school after the White House move. I loved the descriptions of the White House. The size and grandeur of it sounds amazing. Michelle's project was to build the White House kitchen garden that came to educate many through the Let's Move program launched in 2010 to help kids and families lead healthier lives. She invited children at local schools to come to the White House to plant and then to harvest the crops. In fact, she invited many people to come to the White House who had never had the chance to be there before, focusing on the diverse and minority populations particularly. The life of the first family is certainly captivating. Despite best efforts to make their life as normal as possible, the Obamas experienced great opulence and luxury, 
as well as complete loss of privacy and anonymity. The weight of responsibility of the role of president and first lady is enormous and their lives were changed forever. Barack and I walked out of the White House for the last time on January 20, 2017, accompanying Donald and Melina Trump to the inauguration ceremony. That day I was feeling everything all at once, tired, proud, distraught, eager, determined to make the transition with grace and dignity, to finish our eight years with both our ideals and our composure intact. Michelle goes on to talk about the sadness of farewelling staff and colleagues, the strangeness of moving to another residence, and the optimism of the beginning of a new chapter in her life. Finally, I think this quote sums up Michelle's life and her message to us through this really enjoyable book. Confidence sometimes needs to be called from within. Am I good enough? Yes, I am. Hi, my name is Alice and I'll be reviewing the book The Happiest Refugee by Arn Doe. The Happiest Refugee is the award-winning autobiography of Arne Doe, stand-up comedian, actor, television personality, artist and author. It includes the story of Arne's parents meeting, getting married and starting a family. Then Arne and his relatives escape war-torn Vietnam with a dangerous boat journey. They end up in Australia and create a new life there. I was interested in reading this book because I enjoy Arne's television show Arne's Brush with Fame. One thing I like about the book is Arne's can-do attitude. This is something that I think comes from his parents. He says his mother is so damn optimistic. His father says to him, when you know it's right for you but it scares you, it means you have the most to gain from doing it. Arne studies law because his school advises it and also studies visual arts because he enjoys it. He does a lot of different jobs. He also tries playing guitar and writing songs. Another good thing about the book is that Arne shows a lot of gratitude. He says, All through my life I have been lucky to have had supportive people to help me along the way. In particular, he is grateful for his parents for working hard to provide their children with a better life. I also like Arne's sense of humour. He sees the funny side in a lot of situations in the book. I recommend this book to adults and teenagers who want to learn about the experience of migrants. I also recommend it to people who want to read an autobiography that has serious themes but also humour. If you like the book Growing Up Asian in Australia by Alice Pung, then you may enjoy this book too. You can borrow this item from our collection. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast. And you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdanenong.fit.gov.au forward slash libraries. 